Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll hear from working parents. How has the pandemic rearranged your world? Navigating childcare during a pandemic in rural Appalachia is stress-inducing and scary. We'll also hear directly from kids talking about how they feel. Pretty scared, but also I just wish COVID was over. And we'll hear about something parents and children can both appreciate. Giant paper mache puppets made in the images of Dolly Parton, a giant eyeball, a hellbender salamander, and more by artist in East Tennessee. People just see it and they're like, what? <laughs> what is this? Why did you build that? This is dope. Um, and I think that's like one of the things that I love. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. If you're a working parent, this scene may sound pretty familiar to you. What are you doing? Do you want some water? You want me in there? Hold on, I gotta finish one thing real quick. That's our producer, Roxy Todd, with her two-year-old daughter. Juggling work and childcare has never been easy, but it's taken on a whole new level this past eight months. Like Roxy, I'm a working parent myself, with kids ages four and eight. We did virtual school earlier this year, and this fall my kids started attending in-person classes four days a week. I've enjoyed the extra time I've had with them, but I also feel like my attention is constantly being pulled in different directions. I'm sure that sounds familiar. It's a story I've heard over and over again from friends and family. The coronavirus pandemic has put our country's childcare system in crisis. Really, the system was pretty patchwork and threadbare even before this year. Working parents in the United States face a lot of pressure, and childcare workers are underpaid, overworked, and undervalued. In today's show, we'll hear from several people who've had to adjust their lives and work in the midst of a global pandemic. Jessica Lilly introduces us to two single moms. They're both custodians and are both considered essential workers. When the global pandemic was first declared and the stay-at-home orders were put into place, many businesses, schools, and most everything shut down, including the daycares. Caitlin Oxley is a custodian in Mercer County, West Virginia. Yeah, it was essential, but the daycare closed down as soon as it started. So I had to be off work and work when I can. It was usually one or two days a week, if that. Oxley says she had no choice but to stay home and miss work most days, even though she was essential. And then she'd go to my mom's when my mom didn't work, because my mom was essential too. Everybody that worked in my, well, in my family was essential, so it was difficult. <laughs> With so little work, Oxley's bills really started to add up but she made it through with support from her family. I had a very gracious aunt <laughs> that helped me. And, she went. and then luckily I got my settlement, so I got to back up. But if I didn't have that, I'd been just out of luck. 
The settlement came from insurance after she was in a car wreck in September 2019. The timing of it was really a huge help for Oxley. I feel sorry for the people that were off work and didn't have that help. Kayla Graham is also a custodian in Mercer County. When the pandemic hit, I was out of work for a week. Graham's a single mom with four kids. I have a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 13-year-old. For Graham, it was a layoff that helped her to get back to work. But luckily, my youngest daughter, her father, he ended up getting laid off because of the pandemic also. So he helped out a lot with watching the kids whenever the daycare shut down. But most of the time, she doesn't really think about the challenges or how hard things could get. She simply does what she needs to do for her family. I don't really think right now anything could really help it. It's just, you know, kind of doing what you have to do during the pandemic. When the daycare finally opened back up, both Graham as well as Oxley qualified for financial assistance with childcare through the nonprofit Mountain Heart Community Services, Inc., because they were essential workers. The private community action agency was created back in the 60s in the wake of the federal war on poverty. Anyone deemed essential qualifies through December. Mountain Heart offers childcare assistance and several other services in 30 counties across the state. You know, you have to make a living. And without without Mountain Heart, I probably couldn't do that. And it helps a great deal whenever it comes to single parents with multiple kids. Today with the kids back to school, well, sometimes, there are new challenges. Pretty much, you just kind of, I have to wait until I get off of work and then do all of the kids' schoolwork then. It's difficult. They do their Zoom meetings at daycare and, you know, they're where they talk to their class and their teachers. They do all of that at daycare. I'm lucky that the daycare does that and they help with that. And my kids, they're also in special ed. Two of my boys are in special ed. So whenever I say I'm fooled in every direction, my youngest daughter, she just started preschool. So it's like, this one wants help, this one wants help, and this one wants help, but it's like, where do you start? It's, it gets stressful. At times, it's hard for these women to share these stories, but one thing we talked about that brought smiles to their faces was pageants. The most important thing about it, I think it builds a child's self-esteem for the most part, because... I don't know, they get up there and everybody's talking about how pretty they are, you know, and it, it's putting them up on a pedestal and it's great. The women don't find much time for themselves anymore, but they find a bit of happiness to see the smile on their kids' faces. And Kayla has this to say to any other single parents struggling through motherhood as an essential worker during a global pandemic. Honestly... You're not alone. Everybody's kind of stuck in their own spot right now. As frustrating as it is.
Kayla and Caitlin say that another stimulus package would mean a chance to get ahead on bills and not have to worry as much about Christmas presents for the kids. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Athens. So how about you? Are you a single parent or a working parent? How have you coped? And if you're working from home and juggling childcare, what's been your wildest pandemic moment? If you're willing to share, send us a note about it. Email InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org or tweet us at InAppalachia. Next, we'll hear from two more mothers whose families were able to come through with much-needed support, but it took some pretty big decisions and life changes to make it work. Uh, My name is Melissa Ellsworth, and I'm married and, and have one daughter. She's 14 months. My name is Isabel Height. I am from Pendleton County, West Virginia. I am a wife and a mother to a little boy named Torrin. He's nine months old. We've been uh, doing this whole parenthood thing over the course of the pandemic, which has been an adventure, to say the least. Navigating childcare during a pandemic in rural Appalachia is um, laughable (laughs) and heartbreaking and stress-inducing and scary. (sighs) This might sound bad, but sometimes I sit at the end of my driveway on my way home from work and just sit in my parked car to just get five minutes of just mindless sitting so I can just take a moment before I go into the house. (sighs) Yes. I work three days a week and my husband, he works four days a week. And when I'm at work, he is with our son and vice versa. So right before the stay-at-home orders across the country started being enforced, my husband tore his meniscus at work. And so there was a period there of two and a half, three months where my husband could not watch our son Torin, and we had no one to do it. <laughs> and I was considered and am still considered an essential worker. And so I wasn't able to work remotely or help in any way and we had to really take a look at ourselves and what we were comfortable with and who we were comfortable with allowing into our homes. I lived in Morgantown, West Virginia up until July of this year. We had a nanny But when COVID kicked up, there were some moments when we were afraid of exposure. We all decided, you know, to sort of wait it out. And then that timeline kept getting longer and longer and longer as the pandemic grew. It never really got better. My parents wanted to help because I was increasingly becoming stressed. We both had demanding jobs and we just, we were just really struggling with um, providing a a good environment, a learning environment uh, for the child and 
My parents also really wanted to spend time with their only grandchild. My parents lived two and a half hours away and his parents lived in North Carolina. So they would take turns coming up during the week and would come and help. My mom would come and do an overnight, do a couple days. My dad would come up for a day. It is hard to find a babysitter. And under these conditions, it's nearly impossible. And so when we finally found one, uh, she is a college student. And she was amazing, but it was very scary for us to know that she was babysitting other families and coming to see us and not knowing if she has been in contact with anyone who had COVID symptoms and that was really hard. One day my mom sent me like a, a Zillow listing just after after about four months of her coming back and forth from Morgantown multiple times you know throughout the month she sent me a Zillow listing for a place uh, in Harpers Ferry and we just I don't know, it's just something clicked. We, you know, I shared it with my husband and we were like, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's buy a house. And we had always talked about moving closer to our parents, whether it was in North Carolina or in Jefferson County. And so we just didn't know when. My husband and I, we have decided that we will be moving to my family's farm in Virginia because we need help. We need support. I work from home and remotely as an attorney, so I was able to make that shift. Uh, it's created some issues for my husband with his work, but, you know, it's been accommodating. Most importantly, I'm able to work because of the move. I, I really couldn't do it without the help of my parents. We really have so many unanswered questions. I mean, the whole country and world does have all these unanswered questions about what the next months and years will look like under these new conditions with a pandemic. And the one thing that is most certain is that I need to be around family and we need that social support and trust. I'm outside on a beautiful fall day. I am working on a little project for Torin's birthday. It's at the end of the month. His birthday is the 23rd, but we're having a little get together with the grandparents and some of our really close friends on the 24th. And what I'm doing is I am drilling holes in little wooden letters of the alphabet and stringing them with colorful string. And the idea is that when we're all together for his birthday, we'll take a break and we will string these letters up in the trees in our yard. So kind of as fall comes to an end and leaves start falling off the trees um, over the winter, hopefully Torin will look up and see these twirling, spinning, waving letters in the, in the trees and, and think that they're as cool as I do. <laughs> That was Isabel Hoyt and Melissa Ellsworth, two young mothers who moved closer to their families this year to get more help with childcare. Melissa works as a lawyer and lives in Jefferson County, West Virginia. 
Isabel now lives with her family and teaches school in Rappahannock County, Virginia. She's also taking online classes for a master's degree from Marshall University. Grandparents have always played an important role in Appalachian families, but not everyone's able to rely on family for help. Also, asking grandparents to help with childcare can be risky. It might mean putting a senior citizen, sometimes with a chronic health condition, at risk of getting the virus. In these times, there are no perfect solutions. If you're a grandparent, how are you managing? Send us a message on Facebook or email us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Up next, we hear how daycare workers have had to adapt during the pandemic. And we hear an eight-year-old girl interview her friends about how they've been navigating social distancing. How did you feel when you first went into quarantine? Sad, because I wanted to see my friends and do lots of play dates all the time. We'll hear kids share ideas for how to stay connected and find new ways to have fun, even through quarantine. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Before the break, we heard from several parents sharing how they've struggled to figure out how to keep working and manage childcare through the pandemic. I sympathize with what so many of you are dealing with. There are no perfect decisions right now. Even with all the safety precautions daycares and schools are taking, it's still possible for kids to get infected. The American Academy of Pediatrics says that more than one million children have tested positive for coronavirus in the U.S. And though kids are at a lower risk of developing serious health complications from the virus, it does happen. Children are also thought to be spreaders of the virus and often don't show symptoms. Across the country, parents are forming study bubbles, essentially banding together with a small group of families to share childcare and virtual schooling. But even these creative arrangements aren't risk-free. The more people you lean on for help, the more people you potentially expose to harm. That includes family. Up until the pandemic, Megan Schumacher had help with childcare from her parents. They watched my, all of my kids since they were babies, um, and they sort of just said, no way, like we can't, we can't do it. We're on lockdown, um, which left my husband and I in a bit of a pickle. We understood, we totally understood, but um, it was still a little frustrating for us because we were like, what in the world are we going to do? Megan lives in Huntington, where she works as a nurse at a local hospital. Her husband is an accountant. They're both considered essential workers. So last spring, they suddenly found themselves scrambling to find someone who could watch their kids so they could keep working. No decision feels like a good decision, and I think that's one of the most exhausting parts of parenting right now is just you can make a decision, but it doesn't feel – there isn't a decision where you're like, yes, this is the right decision for us, and it feels good, and I'm doing the right thing for me and for my kids and for my community. I don't know that anybody can say right now, like, that they really can sit with the decision they've made and feel good about it. I think there's just too many factors at play. We just have to do the best we can do. Megan went down to part-time, working 20 hours a week, which gave her more time for childcare. 
Megan's three kids go to school in person two days a week and attend virtual school three days a week at a daycare called Children's Place. But to remain open, that daycare had to change how it does business virtually overnight. Kyle Vass went to talk with the daycare's director to find out how she's been adapting. Children's Place is a one-story octagon of a building with brick walls and a brown tin roof. It looks more like a church or a visitor center from the 70s than an actual school. Hello. Hi, I was here. Is Gretchen here? I was here to uh, uh, record for West Virginia Public Broadcasting and with Public Radio. Oh, okay. One of my favorite radio stations. That's where my car radio is all the time. The administrative assistant opens the door, letting me into the atrium, where bright orange walls and colored rugs welcome 75 kids every day. This child care center is home to a preschool and a kindergarten, but it's also a daycare that takes in infants from just six weeks old. A red line across the floor keeps me from walking past the entrance of the center, while the decor screams, children welcome. It also looks a lot smaller than it used to. Hi, Gretchen. Hi. <laughs> it feels really weird being here. <laughs> Yeah, have you? I mean, I'm sure you get this all the time. Like, people have come back here. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, yeah, and they just kind of look around and go, it looked a lot bigger when I was here. Gretchen Palmer was my kindergarten teacher when I went to school here an undisclosed number of years ago. Gretchen Palmer. I'm the director of Children's Place. Gretchen says managing a preschool slash daycare slash kindergarten is already stressful under normal conditions. But during COVID? It's very stressful because you have 75 little line, lives on the line. Now, we, we have, when we take temps in the morning, I have sent kids who have like a 99. It's not really a fever, but it's questionable. Go have the doctor check them out. And they're usually really good about it because they want to keep their child safe too. And they appreciate the fact that we're checking and making sure that we're up on it. And then the doctor will look them over and they can come back if I have a note from the doctor that says it's an ear infection. They'd probably be more frustrated if it was their own boss telling them they had to go home as opposed to their child. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and again, they haven't been, they, I haven't had a whole lot of pushback. I've had some that grumbled, but you know, sorry. And you know, I don't really, that's the rules. Sorry. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. Yeah. But that is the way it's going to be. The school-age kids who go to public school a couple of days a week and then come to us for virtual learning have to change their shoes when they come in so that they're not carrying germs from public school into my building. So they keep a set here, they change their shoes, and then when they leave, they change back out and go. Wow, down to the shoes. Is there much in terms of like trying to keep the like inevitably sticky hands of children less sticky or the, the, the <laughs> they just ooze the stuff they out just of ooze fluids from every part of their body. Yeah. It's always sticky, the hands. It's always sticky, gooey. You know, we we don't use hand sanitizer on that's mostly for the staff and for the parents. We just wash hands constantly or use baby wipes and, you know, stuff like that. So, Is it because they might put it in their eye or? The hand sanitizer? If, I mean, it's alcohol. If they lick their hand, their hands are always in their mouth and they're consuming alcohol. 
Of course, before the pandemic, none of this was in place. No temperature taking, no extra pair of shoes at the door, no red line keeping outsiders from entering the building. She says at the onset, parents were worried about sending their kids to a daycare. She was faced with a mass exodus of parents. A lot of people were panicky. And so they just decided, okay, well, um, my, build, my business is shutting down, so I'm just, I'm just going to keep all the kids at home. And we did lose some. And it's building back up now. But we got a um, critical care license through the state of West Virginia where we could only take essential workers. And so that cut down our enrollment kind of even more because you could only have daycare if you were an essential employee in somebody's business. So did they change? I mean, I guess they said all child care centers are shut down and, unless you have the unless certificate. You have that certificate, yes. And it was one of those things. I got the email at like uh, 10 o'clock one night that by 7 o'clock the next morning that application had to be in or you could not open your doors at 7 o'clock. You got this at 10 p.m.? <laughs> yes. And it was like, oh, crap. So I got to work at 5 o'clock in the morning, got my application done and shot it to the state said your doors will not open if you do if you are not in the process of applying for this certificate so i was in the process i got it in at six o'clock so as like a administrator director manager figure was there a lot of just having to like call your staff back and be like okay now this is this now this is that yes okay now we have to do it this way we did close down for the month of april just because it was getting bad. We didn't know what was going to happen. Staff was getting panicky, you know, because you're dealing with the public. And staff was getting very concerned. And I was getting concerned for them. So talking with the board, we decided that we would shut down for the month of April. And then we started back up in May. And that just kind of gave us all a chance to regroup and kind of get ourselves together personally. And then we could come back and do our job. Gretchen says she used that month to develop policies. She knew when the school reopened, there'd be a learning curve for new protocols inside the building. But she feels the need, to this day, to keep an ear out for what her staff is up to outside the building as well. When all of the decisions that had to be made regarding like telling employees, like, look, you're not going to go travel, you're not going to go to these hotspots and just come back, Was there any pushback on that? I mean, were employees... They all really understood that we are a collective unit and we have to, as a group, we all play a part in keeping everybody safe and my actions prevent you from getting sick. And they really stepped up and they did a great job. So I really didn't get a lot of pushback. There There were some grumbles, but... I was kind of a hard nose about, no, you won't. No, you won't. Now, obviously, I can't totally control what you do on the weekend, but I question them. <laughs> so what'd you do this weekend? And then I might cock an eyebrow if it's something that was... Hmm, give them the mom eyebrow. Um, now, when they found out that they would have to quarantine if they went out of state on vacation and stuff like that, they weren't happy, but they didn't push it. They, I didn't have, they canceled their plans. So I was really proud of them. Was it the same thing with parents? You know, they, they really were actually quite thankful 
that, you know, we were trying to protect their kids and keep everybody safe. Um, if I've had some that cancel vacation plans because they knew that the potential of them having to quarantine and their child quarantine, it would, it's just not worth putting anybody at risk. And they realize that, you know, okay, I could go on vacation and my kid comes here. He may be fine, but he may make somebody else sick. That was Gretchen Palmer, who directs Children's Place, a daycare and preschool in Huntington, West Virginia. Kyle Vass originally reported that story for the s and podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. A few months ago, we put out a survey to ask child care workers how they're handling all these changes. Some said they're afraid for their health. All of them said they feel underpaid. Child care workers typically make between $20,000 and $30,000 a year. Several of the folks who filled out the survey also said they don't have paid sick leave. And those who do said their schools are so understaffed, they don't really feel like they have the option to call in sick. Daycare workers aren't required to get regularly tested for COVID-19. And according to West Virginia health officials, there have been several outbreaks of the virus at daycares already. For the next few months, officials say they expect to see even more as the number of cases across the country continues to grow. If you're a daycare worker in Appalachia, we want to hear from you. Have you come into contact with the virus? If you wake up one morning and have symptoms like a fever or sore throat, do you feel able to call in sick? We've posted an anonymous survey on our website, and we'd love to hear what your experience has been. There's also a survey for working parents about the challenges you're facing. That's at wvpublic.org. Later in the show, a story about giant puppets and the artists in East Tennessee who make them. What would it look like if art was created by the communities that exist there, particularly by communities that often aren't represented or don't get to tell their stories? Can puppets help create social change? We'll hear that story in just a little bit. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. So far today, we've heard from parents and child care workers about how the pandemic is changing so much about the struggle to balance life and work. Adults are stressed, but so are kids. Amid the hustle of daily life, I know I can sometimes forget about how extraordinary this year has been. And it's been extra hard for children. Virtual schooling, all this screen time, they can't play with their friends. And this is such a crucial time for them in terms of learning from social interactions with each other. Eight-year-old June's been spending a great deal of her time lately helping her mom produce a podcast for VPM called Social Distance Assistance. We're going to turn the next part of Inside Appalachia over to June and her mom, Kelly Jones. Kelly asked her daughter how she's feeling. Pretty scared, but also I just wish COVID was over. Yeah, so like scared and exhausted, like frustrated with it all. Yeah. Was there something that happened this week especially that made you feel like, okay, enough already? Just going to the park, because, like, we couldn't see any of my friends at the park. Mm, Like, miss that. Yeah. Yeah, we went to the park, and then you came home to have a play date on FaceTime, which is, like, totally backwards. Usually you go to the park to hang out with friends. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think would make you feel better? COVID being over. Sure. Well... It's not over. Not yet. We got to hang in there a little bit longer. That's Kelly Jones, host of the podcast Social Distance Assistance from VPM, talking with June, her eight-year-old daughter and co-host. 
June called up some of her best friends to talk with them and see how they've been coping. How did you feel when you first went into quarantine? Sad, because I wanted to see my friends and do lots of play dates all the time. I didn't really like it. I missed a lot of my friends, and I didn't like the virtual play dates and meetings. Well, there's a lot that changed, but I'll name a few of the most obvious. You can't see anyone. You have to stay six feet apart, and... We have to talk through screens. It's like we can't like play in like the same room. Like if we like want to play the same game but we don't have the same toys, it's like really hard to do that. I'm scared because my mom donated a kidney to my dad. It makes his immune system a little weaker than all of us. So if he gets the coronavirus, it takes him a long time to um, get recovered and. You might die from the coronavirus. So that's kind of scary. How are you doing now? Kind of happier because we, we did a lot of funner stuff. And my birthday happened. I'm doing good, kind of. Well, I'm doing good and yeah, I'm doing good. Well, me and my two other friends, um, we meet up and we stay six feet away and sometimes we ride our bikes down this road. But you still say six feet away? Yeah, that's two squares. Two squares, sidewalk squares. How have you been feeling? I'm okay. When I first went into quarantine, I was pretty nervous. Well, actually, I was like kind of excited. It was like when Christmas was, because it said two weeks forth, and now how long my Christmas break was at school, but then it was too full, so like, I'm bored, I keep saying that, I was like, so bored. I kind of like quarantine. I don't have to do stuff that I had to do um, before quarantine, like, I don't. Like, I like swimming lessons, but sometimes you, like, don't want to do it. Yeah, it's the same, the same thing with me and Kung Fu, but I still have to do Kung Fu online. Are you feeling lonely during quarantine? Yeah, I'm kind of feeling a little lonely. Yeah, because I'm an only child. And I don't really get to see my uniforms. Not really, because I get I still get to see you and talk to you. Does it help to have a sibling? Hmm, sort of, but she but they might drive you crazy. <laughs> or sometimes they might be nuts. You never know. Kinda and kinda not. We kinda fight because you know brothers and sisters don't get along. Have you invented any new games since you've been stuck at home? Well, yes. This this game called Birdie Paddle. Huh. Oh, I did invent this game called Zoo Safari. You pick an animal and you go across the zoos, like the zoo, and try to get to this flying cat. Hide and seek, and you have to get to the bank bed and if someone tags you then you're stuck to the ground and you can't get to the bed. 
It contains two cardboard paddles that go on your hands that are connected to your hands with rubber bands. And then you hit this birdie, like a like a badminton birdie. Yeah, I invented one where you get a cord that has a feeling on it and you have to cover your face and they have to guess what it is. It could be sad or mad or anything like that. This is what I made today. It's a sheet filled with dish soap and it's a unicorn face on it and it's squishy. Huh. I'm gonna pop its eye out. Ready? Oh gosh! We've been listening to a group of elementary school children who live in Virginia. Eight-year-old June recorded this conversation with some of her friends, Ellie, Lorna, Umaka, Hazel, and Oliver. Their conversation was part of a podcast episode June co-hosted with her mom. I've got to say, June, we're super impressed with your interview skills, and we're lucky to get to share a bit of the show you produced with our listeners. In this next story, June talks with her school librarian, Ms. Flowers, about how she's been helping kids stay excited about reading. One thing she's been doing is making videos for kids, like this one. When you think about the part of kid life that's being disrupted most, you probably think about daycare and school. And it is disruptive for parents, too. How are we supposed to get work done while you are at home? Who is supposed to watch you if we have to leave the house for work? And how are we supposed to suddenly learn from home if we've never had to before? Who's going to teach us? There are lots of school-related helpers. I mean, first, a shout-out to your teachers who have been working really, really hard to make sure that you're learning the things you need to know to get a good start for third grade next year. They're trying to figure out ways to make sure that you're safe and challenged and learning, even when you can't be in the classroom. (laughs) And a lot of them are trying to teach their classes with kids of their own at home. It's so hard. You have been out of school since the middle of March. We have been doing the homeschool thing, kind of, sort of. I hope that your teachers are not listening right now. Well, one teacher that knows I've mostly been doing podcasts instead of schoolwork is my school librarian, Miss Flowers. I called her up to talk about books, Bunny Georgie, and these videos that she's been posting on Facebook to help kids stay excited about reading during quarantine. Hi, Charlottesville students and my friends at Johnson Elementary. I'm Miss Flowers, and I'm here to tell you a story today. Today's story... So my name is Rebecca Flowers, and I am the school librarian at Johnson Elementary School in Charlottesville, Virginia. One morning, Anansi the spider sat in a tree looking down onto Chicken's garden where Chicken was tending to his melon patch. So I have been recording myself reading stories for all my Johnson friends at Johnson Elementary School. And so I pick out books that I I know our kids already love. I've been reading them, recording myself reading them or filming myself reading them. But I put the images of the books on the videos so that you can see the pictures as I'm reading. And I also like to um, make funny faces and sounds and put some sound effects in there to make it a little more exciting and fun. So, of course, I miss their real faces. I wish that we could read stories together in person, but it's been fun to read stories and share them online with all my students. How does that feel different? 
So it, it feels very different because um, a library is a place where many different people come together to be together and share stories. And since we can't do that right now, it's not safe to do that right now. We can't be together. Um, so that part feels very different. I'm used to seeing lots of kids in the library and really being able to um, you know, read books and talk about books and share books together. Um, and I, I don't have that conversation with kids um, when I'm reading them online. I'm just talking to a camera. So it's, it's not as personal and it's not as fun. Um, but I, I do know that kids enjoy watching them. So that, that makes me feel good. Um, that I know that they're enjoying them, even if we can't be together. Is there a book you always wanted to read, but you didn't have time? And now you have time because you're stuck at home? Yeah, so I have an ever-growing stack of books that um, I, I want to read all the time. There's part of my bookshelf back there. It's just overflowing with books that I never have time to read. Um, I, but I've actually found it really hard to concentrate and read right now. It's been difficult for me to read like I usually do. Um, but I have been making an effort to read before I go to bed. So I've been reading some of those books in my to-be-read pile and I read a lot of kid, kids' books because I want to read the books that you guys like to read. And I also want, I like reading them because I think kids' books are great. So I've really been into graphic novels recently. And I just finished um, a graphic novel called New Kid that was really good. I'm reading a novel series that I really like right now. Great. What's it called? Wings of Fire. Oh, yeah. That's a very popular one at Johnson Elementary. I'm glad you like it. Why is it hard to concentrate on reading the books? That's a good question. And I've been trying to figure that out because I don't usually have a hard time reading. I really enjoy reading. But I think I'm just I'm thinking about a lot of things. There's a lot of things on my mind about you know what's going on and what's going to happen in the future. Um, what is school going to be like? What is the library going to be like? So I think about these things a lot, and I, I think it makes it hard for me to focus. Is there a difference between reading books and reading online? I feel like there's a difference. I feel like holding an actual book in your hands, a book made out of paper, and you turn the pages, I think that's a whole experience that that everyone needs to have. And reading online... Uh, you know, we're doing so many things online that we're staring at screens all day long and we're, um, you know, it's not good for our eyes and it's it's tiring. It's exhausting to look at screens all day long. And I think looking at a an actual book is good for your soul. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your brain. If reading actual physical books is different than reading books online, how are kids getting books right now? Right. So I work with a program um, called Books on Bikes. We're a program in Charlottesville that usually delivers books to kids by bicycle during the summer. Now, we can't ride our bicycles and visit a neighborhood and have the kids come run out and gather with us like we usually do in the summertime. Um, but we have been doing some book pickup drives. So some of the schools, we've um, created little book grab bags that that kids can pick up at their schools where you can drive up and um, pick up a bag of, of books that you can take home and keep with you. 
How can we help each other get through the end of the school year? I think just being connected to one another is is really the best that we can do and and um, keep in touch through the school year and, and hopefully through the summer even. I hope to keep doing stories even during the summertime. Darn, said Todd. Now I'll have to go home alone again. Joy erased her name from the blackboard. <laughs> that was a silly one. I hope you liked that. Bye. That story came from an episode of VPM's podcast, Social Distance Assistance, called Youth in the Time of Coronavirus. It was produced by Kelly Jones and her eight-year-old daughter, June. We don't have time to listen to the full episode, but we've posted it on our website, wvpublic.org. Thanks, June, and thanks to your mom, Kelly, for getting creative and helping us hear from kids during these topsy-turvy times. Let's talk about some things that both parents and children enjoy. Puppets, parades, and pageantry. Our next story wraps in all three. Throughout history, puppets and marionettes have been used to tell rowdy stories, poke fun at authority figures, and provide entertainment for cheap. Puppetry blurs the line between play and politics, between protests, pageants, and parades, all of which have a storied history in the South. In Knoxville, Tennessee, Cattywapus Puppet Council is building on that tradition. Folkways reporter Katie Myers has more. It's like a riddle. Where in the world can you see Dolly Parton, a catfish, and a single giant eye? Here's a hint. They're big, they're on poles, and they're made of paper mache. And coming after them down the street are more strange figures. An African bird, a raised fist, a blue witch, a hellbender salamander. They're all puppets, held aloft, by the stream of people marching down the street to the sound of drums, accordions, and kazoos. Dolly's 15 feet tall. The catfish is held overhead, stretched between two poles. Some of the puppets are smaller, just heads and masks. This was the scene at the Appalachian Puppet Pageant. For one day every year, the Magnolia Avenue Strip in Knoxville, Tennessee, comes alive with the magic of Cattywampus Puppet Council. My favorite puppet is the Nikki Giovanni puppet. I like the Dolly Parton one. That's Kalani and Leilani Wilson. They're 12 and 13 years old. Well, you know, everybody has to love Dolly. Come on. (laughs) And that's their mom, Lady. Lady, a fierce local artist who lives with a disability, says she knew after her first puppet pageant that it could be a home for her. I I was taken back and I felt really appreciated because I did not think that I was going to be able to participate in the actual parade because I just physically wouldn't have been able to walk it. And to see how this community reached out to other nonprofits and got me an electric wheelchair so that I could march in the parade in my costume. Caddy Wampus has made fostering this sort of inclusive, playful arts community its mission since its beginnings in 2014. And the force behind it is Rachel Milford. I was born and raised in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm 
I guess the executive and artistic director of Cattywampus Puppet Council, which sounds like a very fancy title for like a giant puppet project. Appalachian culture, animals and plants inspired early puppet designs like Dolly and the Hellbender. Later designs explored Knoxville's multicultural heritage. Rachel worked to make this new weird art project represent the community in all its forms. Cattywampus could be a home for everyone, not just wealthy, able-bodied white people who, she says, dominate Knoxville's art world. What would it look like if art was created by the communities that exist there, particularly by communities that often aren't represented or don't get to tell their stories? Cattywampus wasn't a troupe or theater company. Anyone who wanted to could participate. What would it look like for, um, for our art to get to tell those stories and actually be used as a vehicle for, for social, political, economic change? Rachel spent time all over the country learning from street puppet troops. She helped plan community events that were fun and joyful, that brought people together. She wanted to replicate that spirit of play in her hometown, which didn't have anything like that yet. So that's what she did. You know, I knew when I was coming back to the South that like, that just the, the sense of like, this, this is my home. These are my people. This is where I come from. She chose the name Cattywampus. Local slang, meaning a little askew, a little quirky, a little weird. People just see it and they're like, what? <laughs> what is this? Why did you build that? This is dope. Um, and I think that's like one of the things that I love about this art form is that it's totally unnecessary and also can bring like so much joy and so much play and so much power into public spaces because it's like unlikely and unnecessary and also like larger than life and I think magical for that reason. One year the theme was our roots our power. That theme was chosen by multiple community members and the image that we came up with um, was a big like giant power fists, like coming up from the earth with roots, um, going back down into the earth, kind of like coming, coming out of the wrist. If the pageant is a cake, the parade day is just the icing. The rest is the months leading up to it, where Rachel consults with the community in a series of workshops. More than 60 people touch the power fist puppet alone. And I ended up hauling that fist around in the back of my car for like over a month to all these different community sites that we were working at. One of these was Inskip Elementary School. That's where she met Kalani and Leilani. With Rachel, the kids made a puppet, a giant Cheshire cat, to use for their production of Alice in Wonderland. Their class carried the puppet in the parade alongside other community groups. When they were done, Rachel asked the kids to join what she called the Youth Intern Squad. She asked us if we wanted to be in it. So it was like, yeah, because, like, we want to make big old puppets. Kalani and Leilani helped lead this group of mostly LGBT, black and brown youth who design puppets, plan the route, and bring their families and community into the process. They met once every week for two hours. Oh, it was, like, a lot of molding, a lot of clay, a lot of jokes, and a lot of um, group work, because... It, it involves a lot of hard, complicated things, but once you know, like, what to do and you do it all the time, it's, like, easy and you can get it done in, like, the max of a week. The squad's first members were a trans kid and their friend who approached Rachel with the idea. 
Because of those kids, the squad became not only a creative space, but a safe space for LGBT kids. Parents, like it or not, had to deal with it and learn from it. At first, Lady was nervous. You know, I never used pronouns before. I didn't know that it was a whole construct. But as she participated in workshops alongside her kids, she grew to value the space it gave her family to explore their identities. And it wasn't just about sexuality. It wasn't just about gender. But it was really about honing in on being who you are, no matter what, and letting others know that we need to see people for who they are, but not what we want to see them as. Last year, the theme was I See You, picked by the squad. The kids wanted the name to reflect their experiences with gender and sexuality. The 2020 pageant was canceled out of concern for the community's health, which was disappointing for Kalani. Because it was going to be, the, the parade was going to be on my birthday. I really hope that Caddy Wampus does live on. But the lesson they've learned, to have confidence in their art and their right to tell their story, still remains. People hear like the stuff we do, they're like, whoa. They've learned to think of themselves as artists, even through life's uncertainties. Besides, as Rachel says, as an art form, like trash art is is never per se uniform or perfect, um, especially when you're making art with multiple hands. So like the work's always going to be a little cattywampus. That's the cattywampus, the weird, playful chaos that makes strangers into friends and encourages people to take pride in who they are and where they come from. And nothing, not even a pandemic, can take that away. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers in Knoxville, Tennessee. To see photos of these giant puppets, head to our website, wvpublic.org. They're super fantastic. You know, my son's birth in 2012 was one of the greatest moments in my life, but it also flipped my world upside down and forced me to grow more than I ever thought I could. Then my daughter arrived in 2016 and I had to entirely reshift my thinking again to take into account a second child and how she interacted with her brother. And that stretched me even more. Now, four years later, we've adapted, sort of, to a lifestyle I don't think any of us envisioned back at the beginning of 2020. But yet, here we are, grinding through it a day at a time and digging down to tap new wells of creativity. Whether it's transforming how our families work inventing new games to pass the time. And, well, this is what families have always done, right? We at Inside Appalachia really care about parenting and childcare and how people are managing during the pandemic. We're going to continue to follow this issue, but we need your help to tell the next part of the story. Have you found creative solutions to childcare in your community? Where do we go from here? How can we make childcare work better? Please reach out and share your ideas, your experiences, your stories. Email us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org or tweet us at inappalachia. You can also reach me directly at my Twitter account, at Mason Adams. One word with the last word spelled A-T-O-M-S. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from the Us and Them podcast and the VPM podcast Social Distance Assistance, hosted by Katie and June Jones, produced by Molly Bourne. 
Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Kaya Cater, Marisa Anderson, and Blue Dot Sessions. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcast. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.